Happy birthday to America. This is the Loopcast special episode for our nation's birthday, July 4th. Happy July 4th, everyone. We are recording this one especially for this week where most people are going to be on vacation, driving, hopefully at a lake somewhere, sipping something cold, having a good time, enjoying our country. So Maybe sipping some Sam Adams. All right, we'll keep that. Um, okay, thanks. <laughs> so I brought we we brought together you know my my co-hosts here are wearing red. One of the things that we often get talked about is how much Josh knows, and Josh knows mm-hmm. a lot, but Josh knows a lot specifically about American history, almost to the point where it's a little bit annoying. I don't know if you know any guys like that. Uh, dominant dominant trivia performer uh, will correct you on incorrect history takes. Really fun to instigate. So that just kind you of know, started this conversation. You say that. Oh, what? You say that. Did but you? I just took two of my boys to the Washington D.C. and you know patriotic thing. Took did the whole. We had somebody give us um, a capital tour, and I was actually expounding more on the tour than she was. I'm like, hey, you know, there's a reason oh, why. No. <laughs> the, so you were trying to prove my point, the, right? Yeah. I'm like, you're just proving my point. She's showing, she's there in the Capitol, and there's this like mock up of the whole city, like, you know, like all the buildings. And I go, well, you know, the Washington Monument is the tallest building in DC. You can't build a building taller than it. She goes, really? I go, yeah, that's why all the skyscrapers <laughs> are in Northern Virginia, across the river in Rosalind. She's like, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to tell everyone else that. <laughs> it's not even that hard. You, did, you didn't. Mean, Josh didn't pay enough money for a tour guide that knew more than him, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but so we're gonna we're we're just gonna go over some good America questions here. I compiled a list, and I really want to test Josh's knowledge and Erica's knowledge. Erica, very sneaky, oh. underrated trivia player as well, knows a lot about America. <laughs> um, I can edit this, so that's my contribution. But we're gonna start with the founding, okay? So we're starting right at the top, founding of the country. Josh, to you, how did America, against all the odds, pull off the win? In the Revolutionary War, I mean the the funny answer is that Americans will wake up on Christmas morning, cross the frozen river, and and kill you. Uh, that's basically what happened at the Battle of uh, Trenton. There, um, I mean it doesn't doesn't hurt. Um, the The fact of the matter is, if you have a determined army, even if you're outgunned and outmanned, I mean the whole thing is that if you look at the Revolutionary War, General Washington, he you know he was doing his very best with underpaid or unpaid uh, volunteers who didn't even have shoes. And they're in, you know, walking through the, the, the snow in Pennsylvania. They're doing their best. I mean, a ragtag group, you know, the French came in and helped us out. Uh, that was absolutely clutch move because they hated the British. That helped. Um, we Same. were defending our turf. Anytime you have people defending their own turf, they will fight harder and longer uh, and Absolutely. more determined. And so that's mm-hmm. why if you look at Afghanistan, uh, you know, they took on, if you think about it, like they could be like, hey, we took a Soviet Union and the United States and we're still rocking. We're 2 <laughs> oh. And it's like, I mean, the consolation of that is it's Afghanistan. But I mean, the gotta give them credit. They they fought for their homeland. So, you know, I, I, that. That does a lot. Like people want to fight to protect their own family. It's a lot harder to get someone to volunteer to fight a foreign war 
than it is right here in your homeland. So that's why um, we kept fighting. And it was, you know, it wasn't like victory after victory after victory. It was not getting eliminated, not getting, uh, you know, totally burnt out and defeated. And uh, it was a survival. And, and we did. And there's so many times you'll see George Washington talk about Providence because there's, you know, all the troops we had like in, in uh, Brooklyn and were able, he was able to take all the, the guys and cross, um, you know, the river because uh, the fog descended right at the right time and the British had no idea and they had, they had some cannons set up and pretend like we're still there. And by the time the you know, morning happens, it all clears and uh, the Yanks yeah. fought on. It was great. I think I we agree escaped. with you completely. I completely agree with you on the 30,000 foot view there that like we're on the home soil fighting for our country. But at the same time, there were those moments like that, right? That sort of, you know, the war, everything kind of was on a razor's edge. And another moment I think about that there was a lot of, you know, call it providential um, happenstance there. But that moment when uh, Benedict Arnold uh, could have taken out George Washington at West Point there. They had they had the the plans for the British to come up to West Point. George Washington would be there. They would you know, Benedict Arnold would let him in and they would get him and end the war um, by taking out the head. And it was really a, a series of almost they just seem like so random coincidences that the plot was discovered. Uh, Major Andre, who was the British guy working with Arnold, he's like walking, he's actually he made it back to British held New York. He was up at West Point. He was a spy. He made it back to British held New York and just happened to run into these three guys who pretended they were British infantrymen. They they were actually Americans who had just escaped from a British prison ship. And they happened to be walking that way and thought this guy was fishy. And so again, like all these little moments throughout the war where uh, there was just call it chance, call it providence um, that, that went in the Americans direction. And, Can't uh, you say two well two cool. questions then, especially we're going to test Josh here. So there were many times you kind of mentioned it where George George Washington is credited with basically convincing men who were not getting paid, were not well clothed, to somehow just continue to believe in the vision for America and are basically against any reason. And part of that was just his character or his uh, his. Like what people thought of him. Like he was regarded as a man of a lot of respect. Is that correct? <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. I mean, yes, a- absolutely. Um, and, and there's this time, you know, like the soldiers had fought so long, so hard in, in Congress, you know, the, the, con- the con- it was, we didn't have the government structure now that we did then, obviously, but in a more critical way. There was no way for the states, it was the Articles of Confederation, there was no real way that the states could assemble taxes, money, and, and pay for the troops. And so the troops were like, what are we doing this for? This is, this is terrible. Like, let's go, let's storm the Capitol, we'll take out these members of Congress, we'll get the money we deserve. And um, the thing is, they all gathered at this, like, you know, in, the, in this tavern, and they were, like, going to plot what they were going to do. And George Washington prevented it all. Like they're all they're all getting stoked up. He comes in, he sits down, and he starts talking to the troops, and he's he he gets a little choked up, and he and he says, "I want to read you this letter," and he, where he has his thoughts gathered, and he's actually required. He goes, "Actually, I apologize." And he's hard, having a hard time getting through reading his letter, and he stops and he go and he pulls out his glasses, 
and he says, you know, in my old age, um, I have grown partially blind in service to my country. You know, I'm, I'm not getting the exact words. And the thing is, and he reads this and everyone, it's just like, you know, in today's internet age, there was like mic drop, you know, nailed it. <laughs> I mean, you don't have any idea like how much of a, everyone in the room just does like, they can't like this guy is saying, yes, you were not treated justly. You haven't been compensated appropriately, but we're not going to have a military coup. You, you can't do this, you know? And he understood his legacy very well. And um, he had so many critical points. There's no country without yeah. George Washington. And, um, and as you say, Erica, so much providence. So That'll come back. That'll come back in this episode. But okay, two questions. As someone who's a fan of the movie The Patriot, I assume everyone in this room has seen this. Yep. Okay, good movie. So questions that arise from, the, is this Hollywood magic or was there actually a seed of truth in this? So- the guerrilla warfare element of it was really played up, like really played up. And of mm -hmm. course, like some of that is just like, okay, cool cinematography, some good uh, special effects. Was guerrilla warfare used to the, to the level that they were suggesting there? Like it was some novel tactic that George Washington had employed or was it not as much in the, like in real life as I mean, the movie? It's not just guerrilla warfare per se, but yeah, this, you know, the idea was you would have in Europe, armies would you know, they, they'd come together and they'd get in the line and then they would start firing and, you know, and they'd be replaced by other soldiers and, and they would do that. Well, the Americans are like, well, wait a minute now. First of all, we don't have nearly as many troops. And it's like, you know, you're living in the frontier, which is, you know, what the United States was at that time. And you you, you don't just come up to like, a, like 10 guys come up to a bunch of deer and go, okay, could you line up? We'd like to take you out. <laughs> and you go like, no, you kind of be quiet. You sit behind trees and, you know. And that was not thought to be gentlemanly, but like it is more effective. And so Americans, you know, adopted that um, strategy and it was pretty much a survivalist, you know, technique. I mean, there's no other opportunity. Like we, we, we're going up against the greatest world, you know, the world power, the, the British Empire. So, um, yeah. And I, I also don't think I've ever hated a movie villain more than the villain in The Patriot. Yeah. The English guy he that kills bad. the son. Like burns down the church. Yeah, that's, I was ready to go to war, that, man. I was. That's the part where it's like that's total Hollywood fiction. I mean, the British just did not <laughs> lock people inside of a church and burn people to death like that. I mean, that's obvious. You know, give me a break. That didn't happen. Mm. But you know, there there were atrocities. You know, on both sides, of course. But you know, um, I'm not saying like war is clean and perfect. But like, I, I remember looking at that. I'm like, that can't be true. And there's no evidence to suggest anything like that ever happened. So. Yeah, but not to make this all about the Patriot, but also the line, uh, don't fire until you see the whites in their eyes, if you remember that yes. as well. Like, they were running so low on ammo that they just had to conserve at the point, like, well, wait until they're that's right in your John face. That's John Paul Jones. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what he says. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't fight to see the whites of the guys. I mean, you know, that's think about a ship, how close you have to be to see someone's mm -hmm. eyes like yeah. that. Seriously. So we win the war. We're moving on. We win the war, but we have to now make a country, which was, Josh had kind of mentioned, structure of the country was much different before... The war, as the war is going on, now it ends. We have to actually make a constitution. We try the Articles of Confederation. Didn't work out super well. No. Um, so we have these men that we consider the, the founding fathers of America. Uh, some very well noted, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. Uh, but there are a few others that people don't talk about often. Uh, so in your opinion, do you feel like any of them uh, are misunderstood in some ways? Or maybe their influence was larger than what the edit they received in history? Well, I think, you know, I, I'm appreciative of the 
miniseries that was done on John Adams, you know, about 10, mm, 15 so years ago. Very well done and appropriately so because he was one of the great founding fathers that I thought for a long time didn't get enough recognition. Um, you know, too many people thought maybe he's a little too religious, you know. Um, and he had a very controversial career. I mean, obviously, you know, when he was in Boston and uh, the Boston Tea Party and he's defending, you know, the legal rights of the British guys because everyone deserves a right trial. Like, whoa, what is this guy doing? You know, and he really just believed in the principles of the rule of law and he was an amazing man. And, um, you know, I thought that 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 has been nice to see. Um, the most underrated one probably be Charles Carroll. And we as Catholics like to give him a shout out. Yeah. Um, the thing is, like they, you know, he provided so much great intellectual um, heft to everything in terms of the Declaration of Independence and, and the Constitution, all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, in England, it was all the divine right of kings, and you know, and you're trying to think of what, what are what are the natural law principles here that aren't necessarily linked to you know the divine right of kings. And Charles Carroll had access to all this stuff. He's Jesuit educated. You know, he knew about these great thinkers. Um, and he was like St. Robert Bellarmine. He was able to share a lot of that stuff, Montesquieu, with all these other founding fathers. And they're like, yeah, this is, this is great stuff. This makes sense. And they incorporated yeah. it in so much, what, so much of what they did. And, you know, 200 years later, except for Catholics, are like, hey, have you heard of this guy? Like, no one's heard of him. Um, very, so he's probably the most underrated per se. Um, because the founding fathers would have thought, you know, if you had six guys, you know, you would have been one of the six you would have remembered. Um, so that's he's most definitely, I would say, the most underrated. As far as misunderstood, as far as misunderstood goes, I mean, I got to go with Thomas Jefferson just for the phrase oh, yeah. separation of church and state. <laughs> it's got to be the most misunderstood <laughs> phrase in the, from the entire revolutionary era. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to go, although he is well known, Thomas Jefferson is much misunderstood and we've talked about this on the the pod the ad nauseum we have i think we have three three or four clips of where's this from it's from the letter to the it's amazing how how constitutionally binding this letter from a private citizen to a church in danbury vermont is like connecticut (laughs) whatever virginia i forget whatever the point is yeah totally suffers i think it suffers from having such a good name like it's so catchy it's so catchy, it doesn't make sense. Kind of like the don't say gay thing. Mm-hmm. Like the, the name is so good, it just surpasses what it actually is. Yeah, the reason mm-hmm. goes to the window. Like, I, if that's not the truth, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Too good to fact truth. check. Let's run with it. Thanks, guys. All right, and, Too good and, to um, fact check. <laughs> before we move on, I have to ask this as well. This is a little controversial, I'm sure. Uh, um, the musical, oh, Hamilton. Do you want me to wrap the whole thing? Because I don't. Thoughts? Thoughts yeah. oh, on thoughts right. on Hamilton? Good, bad, hate it. I mean, love in it. general, I just all hate right. musicals. I've always hated <laughs> musicals. I and the only I've only seen one in my life that I really liked, and that was Fiddler on the Roof. But the, other than that, I that's just cool. in general hate. Uh, that's hate, really I hate, sweet. I that hate musicals, sweet. and I, my mom and I got absolutely uh, diametrically opposed lessons from it. That'll be a story from another day, but. <laughs> I don't really, ca- you know, care for what, Hamilton. I'm not going to watch this musical. I'm not against it, but whatever. But Hamilton, right. Hamilton is awesome. Let, the man. Let Eric in. Let Eric in. So what's going on? Hamilton was a staple of my three older daughters' uh, education, and yes, I did let them listen to it, swear words and all. We we had a rule though. So the rule was you could watch the first act of Hamilton, 
And then once you were old enough and you could read the entire miracle at Philadelphia, which is this long historical tome account of the framing of the Constitution, I would allow you to watch the second act of Hamilton, which is about that. But I so I have a theory that all American musicals are yeah actually all American musicals are just expression expressions of the Nietzschean will to power and the whole my truth your truth so they're all corrupt except Hamilton I'm gonna go with Hamilton is the exception and I really enjoyed it I think yes there's a lot of woke going on etc but uh but I'm I am a yeah. fan of Hamilton You're it's got and, some and now it's qualities. like now yeah. now my daughters tell me it's cringe because yeah know, I'm gonna have it's to old disagree and it's on cringe that one. now <laughs> but uh, I liked it because I'm old. I liked Hamilton. And cringe? It's cringe. That's okay. It's cringe. <laughs> I don't mind being cringe. Okay, okay. We I'm moved good. past Hamilton. I, I figured I had on. to throw that Kathleen one in there. Kathleen Manuel Miranda. Okay. Who, may he be converted. Amen. Yeah, seriously. Uh, so, most underrated presidents. Oh, boy. Josh. You know, I, I think we should give appropriate credit to um, President Ulysses S. Grant. Like, you know. You, you took mine. Oh. <laughs> Okay. He wasn't. He wasn't good. He bought too much into the, the era of the time in terms of his anti, you know, Catholicism. He he did too much on the Blaine Amendments, that kind of stuff. So I'm not going to excuse mm-hmm. that. But a lot of the, you know, post-war uh, healing of the country, he had fought long and hard to make sure that you know to try to get the South back in line and back in the Union. Um, and the South hates him for it, and they sullied his name for generations. Um, but mm-hmm. he's, he, you know, he did a lot. For the country, and you know, he won the war. I mean, there's no question. You know who was instrumental in yeah. that? Robert E. Lee. Mm. Instrumental in what? Oh, in d- in the submerging him. Yeah, I don't know if. Well, he's... no, he Robert e., Robert E. Lee surrendered way before he could. He could have prolonged it, made a bloody, um, gone guerrilla warfare, but he actually surrendered, and he was given a place of. Uh, well, it, he and his soldiers were given. Uh, they weren't tortured or you know enslaved because. They, they they came back on good terms because of how Robert E. Lee resigned. Well, I mean, but the thing is, you we know, might disagree on that. Uh, Grant, you know, was, um, you know, after he, he won the Battle of Vicksburg, like he allowed the the South, like the soldiers there, like, and it wasn't like, you know, it, this idea of unconditional surrender always, you know, mm-hmm. he's like, he modifies it. He's like, look, you know, you can keep your sidearm, you know, you can keep, you know, uh, you can't keep your your slaves, but you can keep, you know, your property. We're not going to take all your stuff. We're not going to, you know, you know, you can continue. Um, and, and we, we need to live together. And, and, and then union soldiers like started providing food for these Confederates were starving. Like, cause it's like, you know, yeah, we were shooting at each other a few days ago. We're still Americans. That was the whole point. Yeah. Yeah, We're brothers. So I think Grant is definitely an underrated one. I mean, the thing is, uh, there's a lot of conservatives today, like, you know, fast forward to the 20th century, a lot of conservatives today were like, oh, you know, Eisenhower, you should have done more to, re- you know, repeal the, you know, FDR's New Deal expansionism. I mean, sure, that would have been great. But in general, you had a period where, you know, so much, you know, with with Roosevelt controlling so much, so many sectors of the economy and then Truman coming in and the, he tried to nationalize health care, ultimately failed. But Eisenhower gets in there and he's like, I don't know if we're going to, not really going to be able to repeal everything that happened over the last 20 years in terms of massive big government stuff, but at least let's kind of chill out a little bit and like not try to choke the rest of the, you know, the economy. So 
Yeah. Anyone who walks back presidential power a little bit or cedes some of it back to Congress, I'm a fan of. Um, yeah. My my other underrated president, since Josh stole my Ulysses S. Grant, that's okay. I'll give it to you, Josh. Um, I'm going to go with James Polk. Oh, so God, was- you took mine. <laughs> <laughs> because- I have so many notes on him, too. Okay, so did I take yours? Oh, my gosh. See, yeah, we're just, on. like, diving here. Okay, yeah. so I'm a real fan because Texas. And while I have no ambitions to live in Texas ever, I'm definitely a New England girl. Where would we be without Texas? I mean, he won us the Mexican War. Uh, he got us Oregon, which, again, you could take it or leave it, but... We would be a much different country without Oregon. <laughs> and yeah, he had a lot of problems as well. Not a perfect guy. Um, kind of left the Native Americans to their fate. He, didn't, he wasn't wholly responsible for what was happening to them, but he definitely didn't intervene at all. Big, big manifest destiny guy. Yeah, big manifest destiny guy. And, uh, and he got his Texas, so definitely <laughs> underrated. Yeah, and well, I guess theoretically won the Spanish, uh, the Mexican-American War. Mexican, Mexican War. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Technically, uh, Commander in Chief so, and, and all he, that. He also noted he promised to only run for one term, and he mm-hmm. said he was only going to do one term. I'm going to go do this term and make it happen, and then he got out of there and was true to yeah. his word. Didn't do I respect term. that. And he also started the U.S. Naval Academy and the Smithsonian. Fun facts. And uh, what you were talking about over Oregon County, he avoided a war with Great Britain, which neither mm-hmm. country really wanted uh, or could really even handle at the time. Could afford, he was the eleventh, yeah. the eleventh president. I just have to get these facts out of the hopper because I yeah. did do research. And do it, do it. I'm Tom. a little bit disappointed that fun facts with Tom. <laughs> if you like, te- if you like Taxmax, like he's responsible. Thank you, James <laughs> Polk, uh, former governor of Tennessee. Uh, I'm trying to think. I looked at a list of uh, other underrateds. I was going to bring up. Um, Eisenhower as well, but well, you know who's underrated in a kind of in a bad way. But um, okay, so Jimmy Carter, who I mostly oh, detest. That's interesting. Hot take. I saw hot him on some lists. Yeah. I did. Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing: like in terms of implementing his own agenda, like the guy was only in for one term, right? He didn't have any picks on the Supreme Court, right? But he has a massively controlled Democratic Congress, and he's able to get through a law passed that expanded the judiciary in a significant way. And basically, he put in dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of federal judges who gummed up the works for 15, 20 years. And all these things, you know, so Reagan's president for two terms and George W. or George H. Bush for another. So we had 12 year run Republican presidents, but harder, you know, picks to the judiciary just stymied so many efforts of conservatives to try to bring, you know, restore some sort of semblance to American life. And, uh, you know, we fight that uh, to this day, judges. Like, even judges, I I like, you know, judges that Trump picks to the Supreme Court. He had three of them. Uh, And But to the federal judiciary, there's, you know, Vox was just writing about this recently, about how several Trump appointment uh, judges have not done the right thing on the trans issue. And so, you know, it's a fight. You know, it's always a fight. And these judges feel like they get in there, they can do whatever they want. Uh, we we got a lot of reform of our judiciary left to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, if, I, if I could leave it at this, I think uh, Richard Nixon actually is very underrated in that all of that ever gets talked about is Watergate. Uh, but And also he was kind of an awkward, he, he wasn't, uh, you know, a John F. Kennedy type charismatic uh, 
he, he was a little bit awkward, definitely a political wonk. Not easy on the eyes. Let's not just easy on the not a good looking dude. No, James Polk, James Polk. Good. He had sick flow, by the way. Go look at a picture of James Polk. <laughs> well, Nixon totally understood. He had sick flow. <laughs> he Nixon took. <laughs> okay, guys. All right, yeah, go go ahead. Nixon, Nixon totally understood. Like the the most important thing over the next fifty to seventy years was going to be China. Like, give him credit for that. Now, whether that experiment worked or not, like, but like to have that. I'm not saying I endorsed it, but like that that massively consequential world history moment where he tries to think, let's try to open up China. And the hope was, of course, and successively with you know the trade agreements in the 90s and up into 2000 World Trade Organization, the hope was that as China became more modern, more market-oriented, that they would have more freedom. Unfortunately, they sort of hijacked that and they become this hybrid fascist system where they use the money from you know capitalism to promote you know, their system, which is a violation of human rights. So I'm not, I'm not putting that all on Nixon. I'm certainly not putting all of it on Clinton and Bush and everyone else on the trade agreements, but that's going to still be a big problem for all the 21st century. And so that's something that, you know, remains a perplexing problem for us to this day. For sure. Okay. Uh, Most overrated presidents. Oh, FDR. All the way. No. That was on my list as well. Absolutely. No, he's wrong. overrated. You're I mean, he's horrible. <laughs> he's not overrated. Like, Barack Obama is overrated. Like, people say, like, you get the top 10 list of greatest presidents, and, and sometimes it's just, you've got Did you the... go to, like, a classical Catholic school? No. My high school, every history teacher I had and my American government, they yeah. fawned over FDR. They're like, of course he was they the savior him. of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no. But I he mean, wasn't, okay. Josh, so why would of you course say not. I think FDR was terrible for this country. But, like, the fact is, FDR was a political genius, like generational figure. You get these people who are just like masterminds. He understood exactly what he was doing. He was trying to and, you know, bring socialism to his country. And, and so he was wildly, unfortunately, wildly successful. Uh, well, so in terms so of like expediency, ter- yeah, so in you're terms talking of about political a expediency, my metric is people think he was this great savior of the United States and the world and solved the Great Depression globally and won World War II. But that's not actually what happened. But what you're saying is, and I agree with you here, in terms of political expediency, knowing what he wanted and how to get it, absolutely, he did it. Yeah, it was deliberate. Certainly one it of the most successful deliberate. presidents, even if it was horrible Yeah, for people who love freedom. Yeah, no question about mm-hmm. that. Um, I mean, and sometimes you get this thing where people... I mean, most of the history professors that do these presidential raking, rakings are all liberal. And so you get, you know, oh, uh, Barack Obama, FDR, you know, they love these guys. And, you know, even Johnson doesn't fare too bad. You know, like Johnson is horrendous, like, you know, ultimate, like, well, let's just Awful. war. Lovely. I love it. War. Spend money. Well, for spend money until, like, like there's no tomorrow. Export I mean, the abortion. Export population control. Yeah. Well, Nixon's was bad on that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is though, like these these lists just sort of drive me crazy. You know, like because I mean, you know what? It's all just kind of baloney and it's very slanted. Like you should be able to kind of look at it and say, even though I don't like what this person's agenda was, this person was effective. He did do things that helped the country. You know, or you know, and I mean, like you know, um. But, but Josh, we're not going to talk about FDRs putting Japanese Americans into internment camps. We're not going to talk about 
Tennessee Valley Authority flooding out all the black sharecroppers who were. Right, not he, he's also like Eight. very partially responsible for the Cold War mm-hmm. as well. So I, I yeah, you can I talk hate all him. you want I about him being all socialist here. Yeah. Yalta, yeah. terrible. I think okay. I grew up at least I grew up when I was in high school or whatever. FDR was fawned over ad nauseum for bringing us out of the Great Depression. Yeah, the question is, do I they think, even do that anymore? I don't, I don't even know how effective they teach education. Uh, history I know. Do kids in, even uh, know who he is anymore? Probably anymore. not. But Josh, who's yours? So Josh, on your metric, Obama's who's the Obama's most overrated. Yeah, I yeah, think Obama's it's Barack obvious. Obama. I, just, I mean, he did yeah. get it, for them. It's like he got the gold. You know, he finally captured the golden goose. He was able to get government control of healthcare. So they'll never stop fawning over him for that. Um, and Obergefell. You know, got Obergefell. Yeah, I think yeah. his long-lasting thing will be the, you know, that he really entered into this class war, uh, racial warfare stuff, um, you know, the CRT and all that other kind of stuff, realizing that Americans aren't going to go for a, sort of a socialist Marxist argument on class warfare, then let's use you know, uh, CRT, um, critical race theory, all this stuff to try to convert Americans into believing nonsense and, and hating their own country and hating their own history. Um, Barack Obama was the absolute champion of that. And Biden has carried that to the next level, of course. Um, you know, I always say this, Americans are the only country, are the only people who are expected to hate their own country. I think it's so bizarre. Why can't we love it? Yeah. Something, something to be said about that, though, and I, I think people have made interesting arguments to and for that Biden is almost somewhat of an extension of the Obama presidency. Yeah, it's his third term. Oh, 100%. The, the way that people look at Obama's presidency with, uh, you know, rose-colored lenses, I think they look at Biden and still are a little bit embarrassed. Not in the same way, like, like uh, in terms of legislation and tactics and stuff, I think could be critical of the same things that Biden and, and Obama are doing very similar things, but- People just fawned over, you know, Obama because he wore tan suits and was a good speaker. But now you look at Biden, he's like, he's fallen over at the Air Force Academy, you know, can barely get two words together. Like that, yeah, but it, when Jerry it, Ford did that, the liberal media went crazy. So it's like, oh, hypocrites. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. So uh, that's a solid pick. Wait, Erica, did you put yours in? You said, we said FDR. I, think I said FDR, FDR and Josh just like, boom, right in there <laughs> with his tank. I mean, yeah, it's fair. <laughs> Josh is a it, steel trap. It forced us to clarify and to define our terms, which is always a good always thing. Important. Always yeah. important. So, okay, next question. What is something that modern Americans have come to expect from their government that the founding fathers and early Americans would be shocked at? I mean, I think government running, the, gov- the federal government being involved in education would have absolutely mm-hmm. blown them out of the water. You know, the fact that, you know, uh, if you just explain to someone like Thomas Jefferson, hey, here's the deal, guess what? You know, and when you come to the 21st century, you're going to be blown out of the water by these cell phones where you can do all this cool stuff. Then he'll love the tech and he'll be like, oh, that's so cool. And I go, and let me show you this video where the secretary or the attorney general of the United States is running the Justice Department is, t- is, is going to go after parents who show up at school board meetings. And he'll be like, wait, what? Yeah, you know, I mean, I... The federal Department of Education, you're like, wait, what? The department, you know, he would just be blown out of the water that the attorney general would would target parents as terrorists because they're upset with federal uh, officials insisting that, you know, you do all this kind of CRT and trans stuff. Uh, I mean, he would be like, um, 
<laughs> what happened, Maybe I guys? need to send a letter to King George and, and apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, George. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was going to say just federal overreach in general, that we we see the federal government in so many areas of our lives and the healthcare. I was going to go with education, too. And just the tax rates, like the percentage of our income that goes to city, state, federal taxes, and what they were rebelling over in terms sales, of what property, they were being, sales, yeah, property, like, oh, and just... like, yeah, I think they would also be shocked to visit our historical towns and to see the rules that homeowners in the historic district have to follow just to maintain that colonial feel when you walk through Mystic, Connecticut. They'd be like, wait, you can't paint your front door? Do you have three colors? You're like, I think they'd be shocked. At how um how reverent we are, especially here in New England, with our historical homes. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I would think twerking would would be higher on the list than oh, that. Oh, but okay. <laughs> but it, he we went there. He totally went. Hey, this there. is this yeah. is the America episode. Yes. We need to keep that out of here. So, um, <laughs> mine would be the. I think they'd be really shocked by the military industrial complex mm. and the Second Amendment. What the Second Amendment means now that we have modern weaponry and just how powerful the american military has become or just the idea that it's even like a full-time job of some kind like they're you know people that serve in the military it makes a, their career standing army just right? because there were yeah there were they were um uh, you know towns of militias basically and they're like all right mm-hmm. we'll, we'll all get together when we need to to go i don't know fend off the british but with our with our muskets and whatever but now we're seeing you know tanks and f-16s and but that would just be if they saw obviously I, the I agree with you. If they saw a standing army all and they and you, of all the military members and you couldn't tell what country they were from and they and they go look at all these planes these warships these tanks look at all these different countries you show on the map all the different places where the U.S. military is and you go and and what country has this and they're like wow the British Empire is that many places like yeah no dog that's actually uh, <laughs> that's America that's the U.S. of A yeah, that's America. <laughs> They, they would yeah, be shocked. I think that I would, would be totally be shocked by that. Pretty yeah. surprising. And then I think uh, Josh likes to talk about this often, but the power of the judicial branch, I don't mm-hmm. think they would have yeah. ever foreseen. Yeah. They never yeah. thought of it as three co-equal. That, that's, that right. is another you know communist myth of, of 20th century government education. <laughs> they did not think of them as co-equal. They thought, always thought the, it was a fight in the founding fathers. Some who thought the legislative branch was, was supreme and others who thought the executive needed to be the most powerful. That'd be like the Hamilton branch. Um, but none of them, none of them were like, oh yeah, let's just have these unelected guys in robes and, and they'd be in control of everything forever. Yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm. No. Total shock. And a lot of them, isn't a lot of the judicial powers were basically granted to themselves by, it was like uh, Marbury v. Madison, I mm-hmm. think was kind of, well, a lot of people credit that as a start of. Review, yeah, it was. Yeah. Interesting, but I think that would just be like, what is going on uh, for early The idea Americans, that only, so. they would also say, the idea that only the judiciary has a way of checking the, you know, the powers of the other one, like they're the final arbiter, as if yeah, we the people the through, our elected ex- through our elected representatives don't have that ability. Give me a break. We all do. It's, it's not like it, it's the, the judges and they are control of the Constitution. It's our Constitution. We have a we have uh, a right to interpret it and defend it. You know, like give me a break. Yeah. So speaking of interpretation, so if you were given a magical power right now to create a constitutional amendment, what would it be? Well, inspired by President Joe Biden, who uh, turned eighty in November, eh? 
<laughs> I, I do wonder if we if it's time to have an eighty is enough amendment, so that anyone who is you know eighty years old can no longer serve in office. It would be a maximum age requirement. Maybe we you know maybe we grandfather in everybody, okay, so that. Joe Biden, yes, if he wants to run for another, if we put this in right today, Joe Biden would still be able to run for another term because it would have been passed after he got first elected. And and why do I say that? So that Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and all these other guys could say until they're past 80. But the idea <laughs> is we should probably no longer have, you know, so many people in office. I mean, like Chuck Grassley's a good senator from Iowa. I like him a lot. I like his voting record. But dude, the guy's like 88 years old. Feinstein is like 88 years old. It's it's time for some other people here. Like, you know, the, it would be nice to get rid of this. You know, like the founding fathers would be stunned. Like that, you know, Chuck Grassley, oh, you're going to run for re-election at 88 years old? Like, really? Like, look at the founding fathers. These guys, these guys were young. Like the, this idea that they were all, you know, they were not like in their 70s. Like, you know, James yeah. Madison, you know, like 25, 27 years old or whatever. They're all yeah. young guys. Because if you see pictures of, or obviously paintings of a lot of the early founding fathers, it always makes them look older and more distinguished. Distinguished. So you think of them as these kind the of old on. men yeah. Yeah, the who got together to close mm-hmm. wisdom. Yeah. Like these are young guys. Like a lot of them were like thirties. Yeah. Um, I think Benjamin Franklin was the oldest. Yeah, uh, it was in the sixties. Yeah, but so many of them were much younger. Right. right. And, they just didn't expect us to be living that long. Like, so if we really can have a minimum age requirement, you have to be 25 in the House, 30 in the Senate, 35 to be president. Why can't you have a maximum age? Mm-hmm. I'll go for agree. that amendment. I'm good with that. Ergo? Yeah, well, I'm going to go with, um, since I don't think the 14th Amendment is clear enough, I would alter it to include persons born and unborn, um, granting personhood to uh, the unborn would be top of my list. Um a federal amendment, a constitutional amendment defining marriage between a man and a woman. Don't think that's going to happen, but I, I think I'd go with the unborn. I also like the age limits. <laughs> All yeah, of these seem like really list. good ideas. Um, I mean, the age limit actually has the opportunity to actually pass. I mean, like after Biden's right, done, we could say happen. to people, hey, you know, mm-hmm. is this really this good isn't idea? Good. Yeah. And, and the thing, that's why I say to people, it's like, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, 70% of the American people don't want either of these guys to run again. And there's a good chance that they'll actually both win their party's nominations. And it's like, you know, is it maybe time for the boomers and actually Biden's silent generation? Is it time for them to leave the scene here and maybe start, you know, the next generation to have a chance to, to govern? Mm-hmm. Might make sense. Yep. <laughs> I agree. Uh, mine would be, I think that we need a larger house of representatives because- I totally mm-hmm. agree. We yeah, don't, that's really interesting. Uh, going back to what the founding fathers believed as well, like they believed that, I mean, there's this big argument, of course, in how we end up with this bicameral, bicameral legislation or legislature is that some people were like, well, we just want two per state. And then other people were like, well, then the big states are going to get advantages over us. Or I'm sorry, the, it, it the was little the states reverse. Will so it'd be the right? little states mm-hmm. wouldn't have as many representatives. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they came up with the Senate having two for each state so that equal representation. And I think now, like the population, I don't think the founding fathers could have ever imagined the population would have ever been this big and that the numbers of representatives wouldn't have climbed with those people. Mm-hmm. So we have right. people that represent us that we never see. Like you would never see them in the grocery store. You, would, they, you wouldn't recognize them if right. they They're representing by you. millions and millions of people. Millions of right. people, way too mm-hmm. many well, people. So it's, like, it's almost a million. It's like 900,000. I know what you mean. I agree, though. Yeah. I mean, this is actually, by the way, this, this is a little trivia for you. You keep talking about the trivia thing. 
This is the one time George Washington decided to chime in on the Constitutional Convention to hold debate. Because they're like, should we do like 40,000 people per representative or 30,000? He's like, 30,000. I don't know if the number's right, but he wanted the you know, lower amount. The like lower number, less, right? He wanted less, num- yeah, he want that more representatives. He wanted it to be much you know, a bigger. So that was, that was, and people are like, sounds good, George. <laughs> and so the thing is, we're stuck at 435 because that was the last time, you know, basically increased in, in, in the 1911. And it's never increased in size. And people are like, well, we hate Congress. Why would you want more people of them? <laughs> You're not getting it. They're more insulated the smaller number you have. I mean, like if you had only 20, or I mean, obviously you couldn't need 50 states, but let's say you only had one per state, like that's not better. If you have a greater size, I would, I would have it at like at least 2,000. That way you would have a much better chance of being able to actually know who your representative is and have a chance to meet them, as you say, and, and encounter them. You'd have greater influence. Well, you'd have greater influence over who gets put in as well, too, if there's less people. Right. So- I think it's time to to write the ship on that. 1911, that's way too that's long That's way ago. too long. I mean, come yeah. on, guys. It's 2023. What are we doing? Um, okay, so this one, I'm going to title this section just um, kind of America questions that maybe get misunderstood or people always think it's better elsewhere. And the biggest one that always comes up is, why do we have a two-party system? We started with a two-party system. We still have a two-party system. Other places have parliamentary systems. That may seem kind of sexy to Americans who are frustrated with the current system. Why do we have a two-party system? And what is the pros and cons relative to those parliamentary systems? Yeah, I mean, the parliamentary system seems very interesting to a lot of Americans right now, precisely because we're so very polarized and there's not a lot of people who cross party lines. In fact, it's so hard for people to believe that there are people who would vote for a Republican Senate candidate and a, and a Democratic presidential candidate. They're like, can't happen, can't be true. And it is true. It is true. There were people in the Atlanta suburbs who voted Republican for Senate and they voted for Biden for president. And that's how we ended up the way it was, because uh, Georgia is very closely divided. So, the, you know, the thought would be a parliamentary system is much more efficient in, in a sense, you know, and it's, and it's more integrated from top to bottom. Like you vote your region, you vote for your candidate and your party, and then the prime minister of the country is the leader of the largest party usually in the, or whatever the coalition is. So make people, I would, you would make, it's an intriguing idea for Americans. I understand that. Now, George Washington didn't want to have a two-party system. He didn't want to have established parties. He wanted all people to be sort of elected the way he was. Or was like, you're just the best dude, obviously. Well, I'm sorry, George, it's not going to happen that way. How do you get a two-party system? It's very simple. We have a system in most, con- in most parts of this country where it's first past the post. Okay. If you think of like a horse race, like the first one to get ding, you win. What does that mean? It means whoever gets the most number of votes wins. So if you have five people running, four people running, three people running, you know, whatever, whoever gets the most wins. Well, then what tends to happen over time is that you end up with coalitions. So basically, the Democratic Party is a coalition of lots of different types of voters, and the Republican Party is a coalition of lots of different voters, and you end up with just two parties because all the incentives punish you for having third parties precisely because of this. Now, you can do it a different way. I mean, you can have, you don't have to have two parties, but why is it that we have two parties? It's because 
whoever gets the most votes wins. And even in states like the South or Georgia, Louisiana, they have a little bit of a tweak on it where it's like you actually have to have a majority of the votes. You can't just have like 40, 47%, this other guy get 45 and this guy gets seven. And that's why we have runoffs. They have a runoff yeah. in those states. And the reason that they have that is because they were actually a one-party state for a long time. There was only Democrats for 70 years. And so you, if you only have Democrats, like, well, you got to figure out a way one of them's going to win. And you don't want to have seven d- Democrats splinter the vote and some guy win with 20%. So that's why you run off the top two. That's why they did that. But for the most part, that's sort of an anomaly. Most parts of this country, first past the post, that's going to give you two parties. Why is that a good thing? I think it is. James Madison understood this. You create parties which are, they're not necessarily monolithic. They're intended to be coalitions. So Republicans, you've got pro-lifers, you've got guys who love their Second Amendment right to guns. You've got people you got who- got Chris Christie. You, <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> yeah, people who like, you know, taxes to be low. You know, people who think we shouldn't, you know, uh, surrender ourselves to, to the green mob who should actually have energy. And then the left is, you know, a total basket case coalition of people who, you know, want to kill out, babies Josh. and, uh, you know- <laughs> Party of death. Call them out. I'm with that. And also, so, some so, things, right? so, so I mean, that's why what's we have the that advantage system. right well, now? What's the advantage? To the, that? the advantage, as opposed to the parliamentary, the advantage to that is that it creates parties and it creates candidates who understand that they have to, you know, uh, try to win a coalition. Mm-hmm. So they have to answer to a lot of factions. And yeah. what happens if you have two party system? Then <clears throat> that the candidates will always try. I mean, they, you know. The, the, the rap on the system that people have is that there's not a dime worth of difference between the Democrats and Republicans. That's, I don't believe that at all, obviously. But it is the case that, that they're trying to appeal to the median voter, the person who's in the middle, the, the person that will give them that 51%. And so they have to do that without alienating their coalition. So you know they, they find the ways to make sure, so if you're a Republican candidate, you make sure that your pro-lifers are happy, that the people who support the Second Amendment are happy. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll cut taxes. Okay, I'm against that regulation. I'm with you. But then they got to find a way to get the people in the middle saying, hey, what about, I'm, I'm in favor of, let's say, you know, whatever policy, like more cleaning up the environment, you know, whatever. Whatever it can to try to win that middle voter. And so it creates a system where the candidates and the parties are trying to appeal to 51%. So it's a good system. I like it. I mean, is it perfect? Of course not. And it's like Winston Churchill said about democracy, it's the worst system except for everything else. <laughs> yep. <laughs> except for all the others. That's, that's awesome. So speaking of decisions, Oof. what, in your opinion, was America's best decision over its lifetime? And we'll start with Erica. Um, I'm going to go with just getting started. I think that the the start, the founding was the best, um, one of the best moments in in America's life. That sounds so corny. But I do think um, the the understanding that the founding fathers brought, and you know, people debate was it was it a Christian founding? Was it inimical to Christianity? Were they all just deists? But what the founding fathers brought to it, including the um, contributions from Catholic natural law thought that Josh was just discussing from um, Carol, that you know, men are sinful, right? We are we tend to destroy, we tend to tear apart, we tend to um, fail in our experiments, which leads to tyranny. And I think that conviction uh, forced them to put into place protections that we still 
appreciate today, the checks and balances, uh, the three branches of government. And again, just to echo Winston Churchill, it's the worst system except for all the others. And I think that because of that start, because of those convictions from the beginning, um, the experiment has lasted this long. How much longer we can talk about, it's going to keep going. But um, it was a good start. It was a good start. It was a good decision. It would be nice, though, you know, uh, President Trump started this thing, uh, you know, to begin the preparations for the celebration of America's 250th, which will be coming up, obviously, in 2026. And, you know, one of the thoughts I had, I thought would be kind of neat, because we had this, this, you know, it was a debate and discussion whether or not we should kick Andrew. First of all, should we kick Alexander Hamilton off the $10 bill? Like, no, no, don't do that. And then should we kick Andy Jackson off? And I, no, I don't think they should have done that either, necessarily. But I don't want to get too much into the who's on the front necessarily of the bill. What if on the back of our bills, instead of having like, you know, the White House the on the back, pyramid? we have the eye of all I'm not, I'm not even going to get into the Mason stuff. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> what if on the back of our bills, we, you know, because like if you look at the $2 bill, it's awesome. It's the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Like we should have scenes like that on all the other, on the backs of other bills, right? Wouldn't that be neat? Like, what if on the back of the of the twenty dollar bill, it's you know, man landing on the moon? What if on the back uh, back cool. of the ten dollar bill, it's yeah. you know, you know, the the boys at Kitty Hawk, you know, flying the first airplane? You know, what if it's Iwo Jima on the on the on the one dollar bill or something? Iwo like Jima that? would be sick. Yeah, that, that would, would be I would totally go. Or with maybe that. you 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 say well, Washington crossing the Delaware for the back of the one, and you put Iwo Jima on like, you know, the the ten or something like that. These would be great. Like that would be a great way to show history. And educate people rather than just here's about the White House on the you know that doesn't make any sense. So I think I like that'd that be great. I, I would that I would, would be a good future idea. That's a good future decision because this is the this is America's was the best decisions made so far. So that could be the future. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You've got 250th anniversary coming up. This would be a great idea. Free idea for someone out there in Congress. I I have one that I'm glad they didn't do. I know that Alexander Hamilton suggested lifetime appointments oh. for elected for officials. I'm glad that didn't happen. That uh, got shot too. down pretty quick, in fairness, by all the <laughs> by the homies. They're like, no, we, we have just, lifetime we appointments for the Supreme no. Court. We have li- we have lifetime appointments for the Supreme Court, and uh, and of course, the most important fourth branch of government, our bureaucracy. This yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I'm glad that we didn't have lifetime presidents uh, for sure. But I think to Erica's point, mine was um, the decision for separation of powers. I think there's a a inborn uh, tendency for pessimism in terms of looking at human nature as flawed and needing things to be put in place to try to mitigate the effects of that, that flawed nature. And I think that was one of the first governments. So, I mean, it's a grand experiment. America's this grand experiment still going on, but uh, many monarchies have been set up with thinking that Royal blood was the greatest thing ever and <laughs> was going to prevent all of these evils from happening. It was going to be the best thing ever. And it wasn't. So I think the grand experiment of separation of powers viewing us as flawed, but, um, a republic, as long as we can keep it, as long as we have the the virtue to keep it, I think was a really great quote. Amen to that, brother. So, okay, best presidential speech. Oh, it's not even a contest. No, Gettysburg, Gettysburg address. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, I yeah, I, have, I saw okay, so I saw some lists, and one did come above that. Do you have any guesses? Second somebody, inaugural. Somebody pretended that there was one better than that one. <laughs> I mean, uh, George was, Washington's uh, farewell address. George Washington's okay, farewell yeah, address, yeah. correct. Yeah. No, farewell because in all respect to George, G-Dub, it, he is, I mean, it's, he's, 
He's the greatest. I mean, he's awesome. So okay, but so then that doesn't mean his speech is the best. Relevance to that, it didn't. Okay. That doesn't mean okay. his speech is the best. Literally, go for it. The I thing, have a quote. The thing, it, 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 the story behind the Gettysburg Address too. I mean, like the original draft someone gave him, and you can see the edits he makes, and it's just so beautiful. I mean, like it's, it is just amazing. And like he was not the big event of that day, by the way. It was some preacher. I forget the guy's name. And, he, and yeah. that guy talked for three hours, and everyone's like, "Ooh, this guy's amazing. <laughs> In the this rain. guy's good." And, why, and, and Lincoln gets up there and he's like, burr, 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 real quick, short, sweet, few minutes. And it was just like, wow. I mean, it, it, it's so beautiful. The, the words he uses, the economy, everything about it, poetic. It's one of the greatest speeches the ever. Yes. Okay, you're entitled to that opinion. It's like Pericles' funeral oration. It's, it's up there mm-hmm. with the classics. It's amazing. Yeah. I have George Washington farewell address. Uh, it beca- well, I think I just, so, okay, of course, I got to give, you know, Gettysburg addresses due. But I think when reading through the, Was- the Washington's farewell address, his characteristic humility is so apparent in his word choice and his sentence structure. Like, it, it, I was even reading it and I just couldn't help but kind of like smile a little bit. I'm like, man, this is just so on brand for George Washington. <laughs> so I, I have a. Uh, People a should from read it. it. People should read his farewell uh, yeah, address. No, I, it's, Tom's going to read it. I, I'm you ready? Awesome. I, got, I got a quote. So, th- th- though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it profitable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils which they are. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned into oblivion and as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. That's so beautiful. King. So another farewell address that's amazing is Eisenhower's. Mm-hmm. Well, I had that up there too with the military industrial complex. That was great. Yeah. But then I also had the follow-up. Uh, Kennedy's inaugural address was actually on a lot of lists, which is the classic. Whatever. And so my fellow Americans, ask not what you, your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I just, I and like, I'm sure Kennedy contributed to that. But the Kennedy, fact that I should have said for overrated. Wrote his my own. goodness. Uh, you know, talk <laughs> about overrated. We, we agree on that one, Josh. Uh, he got, he got assassinated. Mm, assassinated. Young, for taking on the deep wife. state. But uh, you know, he had an affair. You know, oh uh, wow, that was not good. He resisted CIA. Um, all right, we can. Well, Erica, <laughs> okay, say? moving on. No, no, I just was. I was remembering. I had a little nostalgia for the for Obama's farewell address, which um, I remember listening to it. I don't know why I listened to it. I think I was bored. But I, I listened to Obama's farewell address, and then I I went and read Washington's farewell address. And the contrast was just unbelievable. So if you wanted a contrast in what we would say political humility with political hubris, you could just line those suckers up right next to each other. And yeah, go get a glass of whiskey. Judge for yourself. Judge for go yourself. Through, go through the address. Washington, go through George Washington's Austin. address. It'll make you feel hope for the country. Yeah. But hands down, um, Gettysburg. Go on with Gettysburg. I also had, well, this wasn't a presidential address, but uh, the Man in the Arena speech by Theodore Roosevelt fires me up mm. so awesome. much. I love that. Big As stick. Like, I, was that a, was that, I don't, was he no, president he, when he gave that? I don't think so, right? I have to look it or up. It wasn't, it I wasn't an address, technically. Yeah. I, I, but, I mean, come on now. They want to look Man it up arena. Can't judge from the outside. <laughs> Man in the Arena. I love that. Okay. So, most unique thing about America relative to the rest of the world. 
I thought about this one, and I'm going to go with the fact that the rest of the world all wants to move here, right? <laughs> like, that's totally great point. unique. We've got some rich white guys who are like, oh, Switzerland, Sweden, Scandinavia, I want to move there. But the vast majority of human beings want to come to America, even today, even with all of our issues that, you know, we spend a lot of time here on the podcast decrying, but it's still the number one destination where you want to raise your kids. So that's unique. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because like I had a friend who had dual citizenship with you know, he was an Irish citizen as well as an American citizen. And he loved to go up to other people and, and, and put them on the spot. Americans who were just grew up in the country, they love their country, which is good, of course, but like couldn't really understand or defend what it's, what it's about. And he go, what is really authentically American? Because, and, and he just sort of like Mel Gibson hated everything associated with the British. And so people, you know, people just were caught flat footed and they didn't know how to respond. He goes, truly tell me something that is authentically American, you know, I mean, you could say it about Ireland, you could say it about Italy, France, people understand what is authentically French. What is it authentically American? And he would just give the, and people come up and they, he just cut through them like a buzzsaw. But then he ran into this guy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Her, I said, baseball, Western, <laughs> jazz. Have you ever heard of our music, country music? <laughs> There's lots of things. Bourbon. Hello. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's authentically American. The silver screen? Yeah. I mean, I'm not bragging about Mm -hmm. Hollywood these days, but. Not about what it is today, but that was at the time. Yeah. I mean, like in America. Like, and I just said, like a few minutes ago, Kitty Hawk and landing on the moon. Hello. Like, we've done a few things for people. Like, give me a break. So I literally, but it is kind of, you know, like he, he was trying to get at something. And I appreciate this, actually. He was trying to get at, like, we have this, you know, um, we like to say as American as an apple pie. Well, you know, it's also a, American in a way is like cookie cutter homes and, you know, McMansions and McMansions and like towns that are completely isolated. There's you, you have to drive everywhere and we have, you know, government education and, you know, every mall in every city looks the same, you know, and like everything is commodified, Home Depot. And, you know, yeah. And, and big box stores Walmart. and. It can, it can, that kind of materialistic can, life can just leave you so wanting for deeper meaning. And so in that sense, I, I knew what he was getting at and I understood and appreciated that. And I do wish our people in our country would have a little bit more understanding of, you know, the important things, the permanent things, uh, you know, family, uh, church and local community that obviously matters more. Yeah. We also, I feel like in America, we have this kind of embarrassment of wealth. It reminds me of how, if you guys are sports people, how the Lakers like somehow always manage to get coverage. Like even if they're even if they're terrible or they're not that good. Oh, it's the Notre they're Dame. They're always being talked about yeah. at ESPN. Yeah, right. Like they're always being talked about because they're the Lakers. Like just that's like kind of like America right now. You know, it's just like, team, right? right. Like people will always find critiques of America because it's America. Like it's it's in the position it's in. It's got this embarrassment of wealth, embarrassment of success. That now it's like okay, well. The only cool thing to do now is kind of there's not it's not an underdog story anymore. It's like they're at the top, so you got to critique them, and so it's kind of become I don't know popular to just critique all the evils and bads of America. And part of that is you know the Marxism that I think has kind of crept in, but I really do also think there's an element of 
uh, it's been so good for so long that it's like, how much, how long can you talk about the good? Like you, you almost need to find problems. People are inventing problems, I think, because we have it so good. Like they don't have real problems anymore. Well, and, and I think I've mentioned that once before too. It's like, it's like these people in Hollywood who are just ridiculously gorgeous and they get, you know, up, up, you know, they get to these big roles in movies where they get paid millions of dollars and people fawn over them and magazines and websites putting their images everywhere. And they just think that, you know, life is an accident. Like things just sort of happen this way. It's like you are an absolute lottery winner in terms of like your looks and the ability to mutter a few phrases while making everyone blink their eyes like because you're a dreamboat. But like get over it. Like that's not normal. Okay. And, you know, normal life, you know, it, it isn't like this. And if you treat it like that, then people just think, well, uh, you know, it, I don't know, like we should let anyone into this country who wants to come in. It's like, well, you, we still have a responsibility to the, the citizens in, that are here and the people who need to be able to try to find a job, you know, like, but I, I feel like so much of this, so many people in our country don't have enough pride of place. They don't have enough understanding of what it means to be, you know, members of a community. That's one of the things I really actually enjoyed about Trump. It wasn't just like, what do we do about the workers? What do we do about them or this or that? It's like, these are our workers. These are our, you know, firefighters. These are our police officers. You know, th it's, this is who we are. And, and we need to make sure we're taking care of each other. How can we have solidarity if we don't do that? And stop pretending like life is just a chance, you know, mm -hmm. like, no. Yeah. And I think part, a big part of that is recovering our history and our understanding of the past. And something that, something else with the Hollywood stars that they seem to think that we just sprout out of nowhere. But they're all the product of hundreds of years of people fighting and dying for freedom and for a country where you can work hard and get ahead. And um, I think that, you know, there is the George Orwell, I think he said, those who control the past control the present and allowing, making sure that we are not allowing people who who have no sense of pride of place, pride of our history to control the narratives of the past and you know, control how kids are learning their history or not learning their history, um, because it's important that we remember our stories to regain that pride of place. Yeah, every every society needs heroes. Every society needs founders and it's, needs the history. Yeah, talk all about Rome is always a prime example. Every of that, generation like puts a hero on the pop charts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, oh, also, we'd be completely remiss during Fourth of July. We have the privilege of sitting in this room, recording this podcast, doing what we do now because uh, our fellow Americans, uh, past and present, laid down their lives, put their lives on the line so that we could have this freedom. So uh, be totally remiss if we did not thank everyone who serves our country uh, with our military, all the people who have family members who are veterans or have died, or if you yourself are a veteran or know someone in your family has died. Just We can't thank, thank you enough for your sacrifice that you have willingly taken on, or if you were drafted, um, in order for us to be where we are now. Well, and so, their families too. I mean, the families. Yeah. You know. And the family sacrifice as well. Yeah. I mean, the bravery required in that um, is, uh, you know, it just gives me chills, like thinking about some of the early patriots who took on the British or uh, people who died in World War II or World War One. I. I mean, just willingly sending the sons overseas, uh, especially in World War II, uh, understanding like, we're sending our sons overseas because we need to do what's right and we're willing to sacrifice our sons. It's really, it's hard to even think about that. And that's why I think whenever war gets brought up today and Josh is rightfully very critical of a lot of war hawks, the, the, the things to send your sons to potentially die over is just, it's, 
the, the there's so few things that actually are worth doing that for. We really need to be very conscious about w- why. That's why whenever we, I, I always want to make clear too, because we definitely are critical of like military industrial complex and policies that are happening in our military right now. Of course, that's not an, an indictment upon actual people who are serving to protect us. But we, of course, want to make sure that we're doing the right things. We're doing right by the people that make that sacrifice. So um, thank you so much to everyone. And uh, yeah, I think that about rounds us out for this episode. Um, Josh, thank you for giving us your brain for this Thanks, hour. Josh. Um, Erica, thank you for keeping it fresh. <laughs> and uh, we hope you enjoy your 4th of July. We know we will be as well during this episode. Hopefully we're out on the lake somewhere with uh, loved ones and uh, really appreciate all of you. Love living in this country. And uh, we will see you on the next one. See you guys next Thursday. <laughs>